What is up, Asymmetry? How y'all doing? We've had this book list that I put together a while back. Somebody asked me, they said, hey, if I wanted to know about bonsai, are there books that you recommend? And I said, man, it is very, very, very tough to try and recommend books that somebody could learn bonsai from. But if we're talking about books that allow us to understand more about the art form, and I think specifically books that allow us to understand more about the art form and its transition from uh, an Eastern cultural practice, whether you're referring to pinging in the Chinese model or bonsai in the Japanese model, and you and you're talking about that transition from that cultural practice to some sort of contextual communication device uh, or medium of art in the Western world that is trying to find its footing. I think there are some very pivotal publications that allow us to sort of track the progress, the evolution, and the continual quest for individuals to utilize this medium to find their own voice. And it's from this perspective that I put together, this book list of five books that I find to be incredibly insightful, revolutionary in uh, a a wide array of um, potential narrative arcs. And just for myself, uh, books that I continue to, you know, even to this day, pull out periodically, sit down and enjoy not only the content of the book, but the nostalgia and the context of what's in the book, uh, which I think is a really, really interesting um, conversation to be had. All right. So without further ado, uh, if you have the books, pull them up. There will be uh, in the podcast notes below links to be able to purchase these books should you want to dive in um, further. Uh, But we're going to start off with The Best of Bonsai in Europe, Volume 5. Now, just to give context to um, this publication, Danny Use and his partner um, of the Ginkgo Bonsai Center put together an exhibition that was really based on being the European equivalent of the Kung Fu model. And Danny was an ambitious, hyper-passionate, super-driven individual. We've podcasted with him before. If you haven't heard that podcast, look back in our um, archives and, and check it out because you're talking about one of the most revolutionary figures in modern bonsai. And what a lot of people don't understand about bonsai in Europe is that Holland and Belgium were, were these countries that when bonsai first started getting off the ground in Europe, these, this, this sort of union of Holland and Belgium and the activity there primarily with Hatsumi Terakawa and the influence that he had on European bonsai, Mark Nolander's Danny Use, uh, and a handful of other individuals. You know, you, you had Loader's bonsai as a commercial uh, bonsai um, company business bringing bonsai to the mainstream you you had you know Danny creating the Ginkgo Center, and then there's one more. Gosh, I'm so bummed. It'll come to me. There's one more really pivotal bonsai facility there that just, I mean, really brought bonsai to Europe and created this. Um, I think initial golden era. This sort of like, you know, we say pioneering sort of in the sense of the United States, but Europe is so much more longstanding. It was almost like this fresh new energy with this medium 
that was being created and this information coming from Japan that was inspiring and empowering people in the in the enthusiasm and the talent of Hatsumi Terakawa. And it's like this backdrop, right, that sort of set the stage for the Ginkos. So, you know, the Ginkgo Bonsai Awards started with a show and then the energy of it, the fact that Danny was going out to regional bonsai shows and he was selecting trees to be shown in the ginkgo, to become a selected uh, ex- uh, uh, exhibitor in the ginkgo, was it became a huge honor, right? Became a big feather in your cap. To win a ginkgo award was to almost empower yourself as a bonsai professional to have credibility. And I remember the first time that Mario Comstar had finished his apprentice and then went, you know, was back in Europe functioning as a professional and he won a, uh, a ginkgo award with one of his shohin displays. And it was like, you know, validation of, uh, of his, you know, I'm not saying that Mario needs this, but just as an outsider looking in my interpretation, still apprenticing in Japan is okay. This is validation that, you know, his skill set is coming out of Japan, out of Arushibata's tutelage is, is, you know, top notch world-class. And Marco Invernizzi working on a lot of trees for a lot of different clientele in Europe. And you see that work being shown in the ginkgo and you see that work having a really prominent stance in the ginkgo. It's like the, 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 the Eastern Western connection through this European exhibition that pulled together the imports that pulled together European based artists, Japanese trained based, uh, trained artists brought in Yamadori, brought in, uh, these, um, you know, external species and imported species. It just became this hub in this epicenter. And we came to realize in the Western world is it, it, the ginkgo really drove, gave motivation to the pursuit of bonsai and drove the quest and the strive for excellence in bonsai within Europe. And to begin with this particular best of bonsai in Europe, volume five, I believe, don't quote me, but I believe this was the last ginkgo Regardless, the first imagery that you see when you open this book on page eight is, is the common juniper from Danny. And I, I, I still to this day, I've seen this tree in person within the past few years. It still looks incredible, common juniper and absolutely challenging in every way species to pursue bonsai with the longevity of this tree, the scale of this tree, the provenance of this tree, leading that experience of entering this book. And then all of a sudden, you know, you turn to page 10 and the stories of these trees begin to unfold because let's just set the stage. Daizo Iwasaki, um, one of the biggest patrons of bonsai in Japan, had the largest bonsai collection in the world down in Shikoku, where we know Takamatsu, the sort of nursery center of field-grown black pines in Japan fields and fields and fields of Miyajima white pine, cork bark black pine, uh, different, you know, phenotypes or varieties of black pine being grown in the field in mass numbers. And Daizo Iwasaki establishing the world's largest bonsai collection on his piece of property down there. He had landscapes filled with bonsai. He had full-size junipers that were treated Deadwood uh, preserved with lime sulfur, live veins cleaned, uh, aesthetic work happening. He's growing and, and preparing bonsai material. He's importing these Korean red pines and self-grafting, you know, branches down low on the trunks of full-size trees. I mean, just like really, really radical stuff happening. And I was so fortunate to get to experience Daizo Iwasaki's collection when I went with Benoki 
in 2002 to meet Mr. Kimura, request my apprenticeship while I was still in college. And one part of that trip beyond seeing the Kokfu, seeing Shunkai-in and Kunio Kobayashi's place, seeing Mansai-in Saburo Kato's place, seeing Mr. Kimura's place, uh, was also getting to go down to Shikoku and experience Daizo Iwasaki's uh, place, which I would get to see one more time after I finished my apprenticeship prior to coming back to the United States and only a few years prior to Daizo Iwasaki passing away. So really, really interesting. He's the judge for for uh, this particular exhibition. And the tree that won it was a Japanese maple from Tunis Yan Klein. Okay, now we've podcasted with Tunis Yan from his facility in, uh, outside of Rotterdam in Holland. And Tunis Yan is to this day, I think one of the very best bonsai practitioners that Europe has to offer. His facility is incredible. The spirit of it uh, just had me at hello. You know, walking in there for the first time and seeing this creative incubator that he had built, the community of students around him, the camaraderie, the quality, you know, like all of these things. But I did not know of, about Tun- Tunis Jan until I heard that he won this Ginkgo uh, ex- exhibition, this award with a Japanese maple. And that was really uh, a pivotal moment for the transition in Europe of this dominant coniferous Yamadori or imported tree, you know, sort of, uh, what, what could you say, convention or dogma that that is a show winning tree. This was a moment where that was broken. And suddenly, you know, a broadleaf tree won a major exhibition in Europe which was spectacular. It put Tunis Yan on the map. You know, it had this history of Daizo Iwasaki. It was the culmination of the momentum Danny had built up in the Ginkgo Awards. And it was just this like radical moment. And I've, I've talked with different people that were at this event that when this was announced as the winning tree, just sort of the reaction in the room, the palpable energy, the excitement, some of the shock, you know, and just like everything that comes with this, this major prestigious event, the announcing of a winner and the winner being a, a very well-deserved and also an unexpected selection. Like I, I, I would have, you know, paid to be a fly on the wall. But I think there was something else that was happening with the Ginkgos and the Ginkgo Awards that was interesting. And that, that was Americans were congregating and traveling to Europe to see this exhibition. And I know Colin Lewis took a trip. I know Bill Valvanis went. Uh, I know Nick Lins wanted to go see it. I know Randy Knight made the journey. Uh, Mike Pollock, some of, you know, Mariah's long-term students, really outstanding bonsai practitioners. What is this whole European bonsai scene about? What is the hubbub about? Uh, the Ginkgo Awards and, you know, what's happening in Europe that's allowing them to establish a very strong and rapidly rising bonsai culture because in the United States, importation had been stopped. Bonsai was struggling with its identity. Where are we going from here? How do we continue moving forward without this foreign source of, of bonsai subject and material? Yamadori was, uh, although present and, and being collected, was misunderstood or lowly understood. And it was like, it was this, this beacon of optimism of like, what can we be? How can we get there? And it's from all of that, that I keep this book uh, continually in rotation of the books that I look at. Now, you know, page 11, right next to Tunis Jan's winning tree, you have second prize, which is Luis Vallejo's Sabina Juniper. And I got to say, 
I mean, I've spoken with Mr. Kimura about this Sabina juniper and how impressive of a tree uh, this Sabina is. I've seen it for myself in, in Luis's museum, uh, Alcobendez Bonsai Museum outside of Madrid. And, you know, really, when I went to see his collection, I wanted to see this tree because I had seen it so many times over the course of, of time. It won second place at this particular Ginkgo Award. But this is a tree that is a trailblazer in itself. And Luis Vallejo, a, a trailblazer, a true gentleman in bonsai, an artist to the nth degree in really utilizing a native juniper. And still to this day, I think in Europe, there's a lot of conflict around, do we keep the junipers native or do we graft them over? And seeing this tree stay Sabina through and through from start to finish as a representation of one of these really significant uh, personalities in Luis Vallejo as a representation of the Spanish bonsai approach throughout Europe was just a, a fascinating, and again, it was like a destination to get to see this tree in person when, when, I, when I was fortunate enough to, to attend. But I mean, you're seeing, as you look through the first, you know, page 12, page 15, 16, 17, I mean, you're seeing a lot, a lot of the hand of, of Marco Invernizzi and his influence on European bonsai. And that's not to take away from anybody else, but I don't think a lot of people really realize how big of, a, of an atomic bomb of energy and enthusiasm and a skill set that hadn't really been experienced before and a personality on stage that Marco brought to Western bonsai. I mean, Europe, obviously, North America for sure, I don't know that I had ever seen a presenter like Marco Invernizzi when I, when I was, you know, attending demonstrations in college and aware of things on the internet, which obviously YouTube and these resources were not, they were not openly and radically, you know, it was hard to find information. You saw pictures, but man, the first time I saw him demonstrate, I was like, well, that is something new. And the enthusiasm around the work that he could do and the skill set that he had was I mean, it was second to none. I don't know that we've seen that kind of firework again. I think it was like a one-off anomaly that empowered a lot of Western bonsai practitioners, enthusiastic young practitioners to go to Japan. I mean, honestly, like seeing Marco Invernizzi in Mr. Kimura's workshop was like, oh, I can, I can do that too. And then Marco came to California and I spent some time with him, talking with him, understanding you know, as much as you can from hearing a vocal description of what, it li what it's like to be an apprentice, understanding more about it. But you're seeing a lot of his influence in this exhibition, and you're seeing a rise in the level of the trees through that influence and through the culmination of a lot of European bonsai uh, professionals starting to, through the drive and the motivation of Danny and, and this exhibition of the Ginkgo Awards, create a higher bar create a higher bar, change bonsai in Europe and influence bonsai in North America and the other parts of the Western world for, for, for the better and forever. It changed everything. And in fact, I think the Ginkgo Awards gave rise to the national show. I certainly can tell you the Ginkgo Awards gave rise to the Artisans Cup. And it's a really interesting experience to look at this continue, continuously and see these nostalgic moments. Seeing the Pinus Mugo from Ian Stewardson, rest in peace, very major bonsai practitioner from the UK that drove the level uh, and I think was a patron of bonsai in, in you know, the English bonsai community. You see a lot of containers from Gordon Duffett who 
you know, is this ceramicist, Dan Barton. You're seeing older personalities. You're seeing yeah, radically uh, handled native species. It was, it, was, it was really something. This was really something to be exposed to and to understand that this was possible. This was possible outside of Japan. Okay. So as I look at this, you know, and again, there's, there's so many iconic trees that we have continued to see that we know of defining a lot of professional artists in this particular ginkgo book, going through it, familiar, familiarizing yourself with these trees, seeing images in other books prior to their culmination at this sort of pinnacle of their exhibition and presentation, and then seeing how they've continued afterwards and recognizing that this sort of set the stage of uh, profound provenance because it wasn't long after this exhibition that Danny decided he had done what he set out to do with the ginkgo. He had poured his heart and energy into it. And I think, you know, as he talked with us about in the podcast, he just needed a break and the ginkgo sort of dissolved. And that's when you saw the rise of the Nolanders Trophy to carry the torch of this you know, new mode and methodology that drives the bonsai economy, that, that, that motivates bonsai practitioners, that creates the capacity for bonsai professionals to make a living. I mean, you cannot underestimate the importance of these exhibitions and how they alter bonsai culture. Yeah. And this book will continue to be one that I take a really, really close look at periodically and, and enjoy. I love I love seeing the, the provenance of, of pieces as they evolve and having that marker in time of that exhibition. Okay, the second book. Now, this is, this is a book that um, if you're connected to the U.S. National Arboretum, which is an institution in the United States that, you know, holds so much history, holds history of, you know, the United States government relationship with the Japanese government in terms of, you know, some of the trees that were imported and, and still exist inside of the collection. It's a, it's a collection that holds some of the, uh, you know, most authentic strands of DNA of bonsai uh, starting as an art form and being practiced heavily as an art form in North America post-World War II. John Naka trees, Ernie Kuo trees, Maribel Ballandock trees. You, you really have uh, this, this rich time capsule in the, in the U.S. National Arboretum collection that you cannot speak highly enough. Now, this is, you know, it's a challenging conversation because how much is the U.S. National Collection engaged in the actual culture of bonsai in North America? I, I would like to say it's a centrifuge, but I... I also know that if you're not from the Northeast, you know, it's a pilgrimage to get to and connecting with it. And it's not the U.S. National Collection is not a mainstay of of the bonsai practice of people in their in their backyards and their own personal bonsai collections for a majority of North America. And I think that is unfortunate because it is something to be proud of. Uh, and it's a collection that is profound in so many ways and has such a rich history. And Stephen Voss is a photographer that I believe volunteered at the collection and spent a lot of time uh, when there were not that many people around observing the really quiet moments. In his book, In Training, 
is the second book that I, I have in my sort of perspective changing list of, of bonsai books to, to understand and start to grab hold of the, you know, morphing of this art form as it's practiced in North America. And in fact, Stephen reached out to me to write um, a little piece for his book. It ultimately wasn't utilized in his book, but I did just, I did just want to read it uh, to set the stage for, for discussing this book. There's an intimacy to bonsai that is largely invisible. It exists in those sacred moments between artist and tree in partnership, an understanding of what is and can be as it unfolds over seasons and years. That proximity, the relationship that forms in the creative collaboration that makes up the art of bonsai is one of its most endearing qualities. Stephen's photographs shed a quiet, respectful light on these wonderful moments. I feel fortunate to see such beauty being put into the world with the careful intention these trees deserve. And I meant it when I saw this book because it's not a bonsai book. It's not a bonsai book. It's a book that celebrates the quiet, intimate moments of observation. It celebrates the patina of a facility. It celebrates the context in which these trees are presented. And the book documents the time capsule of the space that holds these trees. And one of the most beautiful components of this tree beyond the photography and the very minimal and select portions of the written word is the fact that there's not a single page number in this book. It is not about quantity. It is not about formality. It's just about separating yourself from the construct and conventions of what we anticipate to observe the things that often are forgotten or they're that moment that you capture that you yourself get to cherish and hold on to that wouldn't have the same impact on somebody else at that moment. It just, it struck you. And the first image that really struck me was the image of the small crepe myrtle, which is only a few pages into the book. And what struck me about it was the sense of scale. But more than anything, what struck me about it was the depth of field and the focus and how Stephen captured a few of the buds in focus, but the wood grain, the silveriness and the age of the bench and the intentional little stand that this tiny little creep myrtle is sitting on. And you see the bench disappear out of focus and you see the texture of the walls that used to exist at the National Arboretum. I think they've since been uh, remodeled and, and updated. You know, all of that is blurred and you just have this moment of scale and perspective and age. Just the beautiful, tasteful quality of age really reflected. And you turn, you turn the page and now all of a sudden you see this stucco kind of flaking off and falling apart behind this Ezo spruce, or excuse me, I guess it's a Norway spruce. I thought this was an imported Ezo, but you see the, the wall kind of falling apart and that in itself is super, super beautiful. You know, when I was in Japan during my apprenticeship, uh, Saburo Kato was at the end of his life. And I do believe, I want to say, did John Naka passed away when I went to Japan? I believe Saburo Kato might have, I believe he did pass away when I was there. Yeah, yeah, my, my memory is returning here. He did pass away, but Mon Sai Inn was being remodeled. And 
I remember seeing, I remember seeing the, you know, because every time that we went to, to Omiya, uh, Mr. Kimura studied at Tojuin with Mr. Hamano, his master, and we would go to Tojuin and we would go to Monsaiyan. And this, this happened, you know, a, a handful of times a year. And so I had experienced Monsaiyan both when Benoki took me in the early 2000s, and then I had experienced it a number of times you know, in those moments where Mr. Kimura would, would take us to, to Omiya and, and we would get to experience it. And then I experienced the remodel afterwards. And I just thought, man, it's beautiful in every way, shape and form, the level of craftsmanship, the, 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 the traditional woodworking, the choice of materials, everything about it was stunning. Right. But the loss of that age and that patina was like, boy, where is the trade-off? And you know that the new facility is going to obtain that patina. And with the choice of materials, it's going to be very rich and whatnot. But man, you know, then Saburo Kato is suddenly gone and this, this, this iconic garden is, is altered uh, indefinitely. And I really thought about that a lot in terms of that's a big choice. That is a big choice. And again, I'm, I'm speaking to this because I know the National Arboretum needed some upgrades and I believe, they, I believe they've uh, since engaged in upgrading some of the, the portions of the facility that might have been falling apart. But seeing these charming moments and these romantic mo- moments that Stephen captured w- was, was really uh, surprising and caught me off guard about this book. But I think it's the essence of bonsai where we all derive value, right? Because when you sit and you look at a finished tree, it's like, here is a finished tree. And everybody says, oh, that's beautiful. And there's even a sense of like want, like desire to own, to possess when you see that finished tree. But you know, as a bonsai practitioner, that that's the least valuable moment. Yeah, it's rewarding. Yes, it's a payoff. That journey to that point, each time you watered that tree and you saw water dripping out of the bottom of the container and you recognize that quiet moment where you were just transported out of the frenetic pace of life for that moment as you enjoyed that, that experience that completely altered your sense of time like that those moments that was actually the most valuable part of that or the time that that tree almost died and you saved it or the time that that tree took that next step when you worked it with another friend bonsai professional artist or you had an inspired moment yourself like these these are the parts of the journey that if you're not engaging in bonsai you you don't get to appreciate and i felt i feel like this book captures some of those intimate moments where it's like, unless you were there, you don't get this. And Stephen gave it to us in an iconic collection and captured it at a moment before it changed forever. Right. Ugh, just such a, such a, a, a stunning amalgamation and, and collection of experiences. Now, again, there's no page number, but my favorite image in this book, there is a, an olive green backdrop to this image. It appears to be potentially a lotus-shaped container sitting on top of a turntable. There's a cloud foot. You can see the gray bench beneath it. And there's water that's accumulated on this, on this black turntable that's sitting under this pot. And there is a clear and transparent reflection of the pine. Looks like a Miyajima white pine sitting in this container in the pool of water collected on the turntable. I can't even believe this shot. I can't, I cannot even believe that he was able to capture this shot. The timing of it, the observation, this minute pool of water, this grand tree, this incredible environment and context of the collection. It's like, if I had one shot of the national collection, that would be it for me right there, right there. I don't know if it's the Miyajima white pine. I don't believe it is. I think the Miyajima white pine sits in a rectangular container. So that cloud foot kind of alters 
that. But I, I felt like, man, when I saw that shot, I was just like, boom. If this was the whole book, if this one picture was the whole book, I'd be happy. I'd be satiated. Okay, but the last piece, the last image, if you had to say, okay, what's the most famous bonsai tree in Japan? You know, there's going to be a variety of different, there's going to be a variety of different trees that come to mind. You know, is it Shoten no Ryu, the rising dragon uh, that sits at uh, Takayama's place in Omiya, uh, Fuyo-in? Is it Toryu no Mai, Mr. Kimura's famous uh, juniper that, you know, he won his first sakufu with at Daimaru um, in Tokyo? Is it, uh, you know, is it any number of traditional Japanese black pines that are named Kokuryu or, or Higarashi? Is it, uh, you know, is it some other uh, obscure thing? Uh, who knows, right? Lots, lots of opportunity there. If you said, tell me about a famous European tree, is it Luis Vallejo's Sabina or his mother-daughter Sylvestris? Is it, is it Danny's communists or his uh, taxes imported from Japan? You know, is it David Benevente's sim, Simi Cascading or Cascading Scots Pine or, uh, you know, his imported Shimpaku? You know, there's a lot of trees to choose from. If you said, tell me the most iconic in North American bonsai, it's Goshen. It's Goshen. John Naka's Femina Juniper Forest that exists at the National Collection, it has that thing, you know, that it factor of a tree. And I don't think that thing is perfect creation. I don't think that thing is ideal proportions. I don't think that thing is any one particular characteristic. I think when you start to talk about iconic, you start to talk about context. You start to talk about context. And when you look at Goshen, why John Naka created it, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a representation of his family in the creation of Goshen. You're talking about a time in the United States that was a challenging, you know, Japanese-American experience during World War II coming out of that, the rise of bonsai as a cultural preservation mechanism. John being this, this, this leader, you know, this, this uh, ambassador of bonsai and this composition showing people what was possible on, a, on, a, on this level of the medium of the miniaturized tree and what it can represent not only as a recreation of nature and miniature, not only as a cultural discussion, but also this literal representation of something so close to us, our sense of family. And we all know, listen, these trees are like family to us, right? Working with these trees and suddenly you have a tree that is like family representing your physical uh, manifestation of family and it's being carried out by this person who is leading the charge in the Western world of sharing this beautiful art form, not only in North America, but throughout Europe and, and Australia and South Africa. I mean, John Naka was an ambassador of good and bonsai beauty and positivity. And the way that Stephen captured this with the shadow raking across the wall and the structure of the arboretum. And there's almost a loneliness to this image because it's behind this fence and there's a little Stakusa to the left of the composition, but, but it's almost um, untouchable. You know, there's a, a, there's a reverential stature to this tree in this image. Although warranted, is almost unfortunate. It's almost devastating in a way. You know, like 
this tree that carried so much love that had so much contact and interaction with its owner that carried so much meaning is now being sort of put up on this pedestal and to touch it is almost like a spiritual event or like a celebration. And there's, you know, almost a a voyeurism to its handling as people want to see it, people want to be there for it and stuff. And it's, but it started out so intimate and now it's so public and it's so off limits. And what a, what a transition uh, uh, of meaning. Anyways, I'm going to step away from in training with Stephen Voss, but, um, one of the more powerful bonsai books I've ever seen. And, and, and it continues to be something that just when the mood strikes at the right time, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up periodically and look through it. And, and again, just really marvel at, uh, at what Stephen was able to accomplish. Now, I, I'm going to say, you know, my relationship with Dan Robinson started in college and I was at a, a Golden State Bonsai Federation event in Sacramento. I was sleeping in the back of my truck to be able to be at the Golden State Convention. Uh, I couldn't afford a hotel. And I got to sit next to Dan and I was with Cheryl Manning and a few other students of John Naka, Mitsuya, Southern California or Northern California bonsai personalities. And then Dan Robinson was sitting to my left. And Dan says it himself you know, he lived on the outside of town. And I still think his entry into the panel discussion about the Natives exhibition, which exists as a, as a sub-video under the Natives exhibition in the Mirai Live library, there's a, a panel discussion and Dan comes in towards the end of it and he just owns that moment. I mean, he owns that moment. I, uh, the way that he took over that space and his character and personality preceded and remained after he left was like really a force of nature and gnarly branches and ancient trees is a book that describes this maverick uh and this outlier in the realm of bonsai and ted madsen was one of my original instructors when i was in college and ted used to say listen love him or hate him if you want to talk about bonsai being pursued as an art form dan robinson is an artist Dan Robinson is an artist. People talk about bonsai as art. Not many people pursue bonsai as art. Dan Robinson is an artist and you don't have to like it. You don't have to like an artist's work, but you got to look at it and you got to think about it. And the way that he handles trees is different. It is just categorically different. As I'm sitting next to him at this banquet in Sacramento, California at the GSBF event, Dan starts sort of poking the bear a little bit. He's giving these students of John Naka and Mitsuya, he's giving them a hard time about how their tree looks like every other tree and sort of talking about, you know, derogatorily referring to sort of this repetition of the traditional model. And of course, there are jabs equally traded back and forth. In this battle back and forth, Dan's eating his steak. We're all enjoying, you know, the dry, uh, poorly prepared uh, fruits of a banquet dinner at, at a, you know, inside of a, a hotel event, event space. And suddenly Dan is holding onto his throat and I look over at him and he's choking on his steak. And I think nobody really knew how serious it was that Dan was choking on his steak. And before anybody could actually do anything about it, Dan gave himself the Heimlich maneuver on the corner of the table, steak came out onto the table, 
And he did not skip a beat of continuing the onslaught of derogatory comments about bonsai that all look the same. And I just thought, well, this is a unique individual. This is, this is somebody I didn't know about Dan Robinson until that point. And after that, I, I could never forget him. You know, and, and I used to think, wow, it's abrasive the way that he communicates about bonsai. And as I've gotten to know Dan, we podcasted with him. I've spent a lot of time with him. I realized what a warm and energetic individual Dan is, but also how brave you have to be to confront as an individual such a dogmatically believed and practiced process as the traditional model of bonsai in the early days of its existence in North America. And I want to read part of the foreword by Walter Paul, because I think it's a beautiful summary of Dan Robinson. Dan finds trees which are like wild wolves. He then plants them into containers and works on them, tames them a bit, but decidedly avoids turning them into French poodles. It is a decision I respect. He would be much more famous, perhaps, if he had domesticated his wild wolves just a bit more. Had he wanted a little more to be popular, he might have become the most renowned of all American bonsai artists. That he has not that he has been content to stay true to his artistic vision and his interest in natural trees at the cost of fame is a common story among true artists. But the bonsai community has lost much, cheated of his genius by his partial obscurity. Now, however, the publication of this book may bring him the recognition he never sought and bring understanding to the unique trees he has created, bestowing a glimpse of his vision to fortunate bonsai enthusiasts everywhere Walter Paul, amen, hallelujah. I really felt like, and, and as, as a team, Mirai went up to Alandon Gardens and spent a solid four days entrenched in Dan Robinson's world with he and his wife. And I will tell you that I walked away, I walked into Alandon Gardens, still not completely sure how I felt about Dan Robinson's work. I walked away from a land and gardens four days later, unable to look at bonsai the same. And it doesn't mean that I changed my own approach or my own tastes, but I can tell you that I learned an awful lot about how to keep the wild as a part of our trees and not overly domesticate this representation. And I also learned a lot about how interesting a tree can be when left to its own devices or when the pursuit of dramatic is the defining feature or characteristic of an artist's vision. And I look at page 231, Dan's Hemlock, because this was really, Dan and I had, you know, talked and engaged on, on a few different levels over time. I had always respected him keeping in mind that, that statement that Ted Madsen made to me. But it wasn't until, you know, Dan came down to Mirai he brought this hemlock on page 231 for me to transport to the national show in Rochester. He dropped it off, you know, left the stand, which was also this fantastic, excuse me, it was also this fantastic piece of deadwood and display moment and, you know, spent a little time at Mirai. He left. I drove it to the national show. I was setting it up for pictures and I remembered I never asked Dan where the front was. And so I called him on the phone and I said, Dan, we're getting ready to photograph your hemlock. Where is the front? And he said, I don't know. Pick one. And I said, well, that's, that's okay. That's, I, I can't, you know, like I need you to tell me. And he's like, yeah, no, I don't know. You know what, Ryan, you, you know, bonsai. Why don't you just choose one? <laughs> and it was like this, it, I, I suddenly felt so much pressure, so much pressure 
to make the right choice, like trying to interpret this work. But I really think that there was some beauty in that. I think there was some beauty in that moment where it was like, yeah, that, that is sure. Okay. I see. That's not what this is about. That's not what this is about for Dan Robinson. And in fact, he probably enjoyed and knew the torture that he was causing me to try and interpret his work and then choose a front when he probably had never actually chosen a front for that tree ever in the life of that tree. And now all of a sudden here I am. And he's like, <laughs> that's, that's gotta be really shitty for him to have to try and figure this out. I look at page 257 and 258. I think this is one of the great evolutions of a domestic piece of material to be turned into a, a, a representation of exactly what an ancient Sierra Juniper looks like as you cross Tioga Pass in Yosemite or Sonora Pass and you see these relics up at the highest level of severe onslaught of the jet stream, the immense snow load. I mean, I have pictures of myself standing next to this tree literally in the Sierra Nevadas. And if the goal is to recreate nature in miniature, I don't know that there is a better example of the recreation of nature in miniature than Dan's Sierra Juniper that's grafted over with Shimpaku on page 258. I don't know that you could do it any better if your goal is to com communicate and convey this notion of the gnarliest of trees. And you're talking about heavily worked deadwood, grafted over foliage mass, intertwining live veins, and yet the freedom and the decrepity, the decrepitness of this tree is exactly what those trees look like in the native environment. Page 274, sort of the seasonal beauty of the stones that exist in the center of his massive pond on site at Alandon Gardens. When we were there walking through Alandon for four days, I mean, spending a lot of time filming, photographing, talking with Dan, watching people interact with his trees and respond to his artwork. This grouping of stones in the middle of his pond really captivated me because it's substantial. And Dan, as a landscaper, creates drama in the landscape as well as in the trees that he designs. But when we started talking with him, he said, listen, I set those into the pond as deep as I possibly could before we started digging up bottles and cans and old trash because a land and gardens was built on a landfill. And so to hear, you know, that the limitation of his depth that he could build at and of the aesthetic that was established with these stones was, was sort of defined by the boundary of human waste. And on top of that, the beauty that he had built, it was just a really nice <sighs> exclamation point, if you will, on this really rugged individual who we are all really fortunate that he chose to share his art form with us. I, I do believe that and appreciate it. And Gnarly Branches, Ancient Trees will continue to be one of these pieces that I refer to on, on, a, on a routine basis, both in the written word as well as the imagery. Troy and I went to the trophy two times together over the course of the past six, eight years. I don't know, the pandemic's involved in that. Troy assisted me on stage twice uh, at the trophy. And the first time, that Troy and I went to the trophy, there was a, a, a Chinese elm that was being exhibited. And it was a standout for a multitude of reasons. The tree was so heavily contorted, had these 
radically twisted branches, uh, deadwood running up every single piece as if it had been stripped like a, like a juniper in terms of live vein and deadwood. It, 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 it was grotesque. It was out of the box. It was, it, it was interesting, thought-provoking. There was a robot as the display accent piece. There was a reference to Bear Chemical Company and almost a gesture of protest. It was thought-provoking. And I later learned that this was the work of Lauren Derieu, which and who is somebody that I've seen over the course of time, both on the internet, having a strong vocal presence, a very defiant, out-of-the-box, almost Dan Robinson-esque in the European version of nonconformity, and someone whose craft in their work, even when I was prior to seeing the maturity of all of his experiences, was very clearly heads and shoulders above the rest of the field. He was able to do things with trees that nobody else could. And I thought it was really interesting to see that. Well, Lauren launched a book called Cosmic Bonsai Burton Style. And I had to have it because the cover was of that Chinese elm that I had seen. And I wanted to know, wh- what is this guy up to? And there's a, there's a foreword in it that I just want to read you a little excerpt of. During the course of our work, we've come to realize increasingly that the traditionalist community of European bonsai fiercely opposes the idea of introducing any form of modernity into this art by relying on the idea that a bonsai worthy of the name could only obtain this appellation if it fully respected the codes in force. The very definition of the word bonsai literally means plant cultivated in a container without any other form of prescription. According to our detractors, a bonsai could only be bonsai if it respected every point within these codes as they are defined in the Japanese or Chinese texts dealing with this subject. The manner in which we set about doing bonsai today has nothing to do with the way it was practiced in the previous centuries. This is for a number of reasons, including the techniques for obtaining them and the tools used, but has more to do, in fact, with the styles of the trees which have continued to actively evolve over time. The reason for this may be in parallel with progressions in technology or due to the ongoing contribution of artists who have been able to develop bonsai as an art over the ages. The trees that we can admire today in the Japanese kokufu are considerably more advanced and structured than they were at the beginning of the 20th century. These trees at that time were housed within different pots and were far wilder and less manicured than they appear today, which does not detract from their beauty. They were subject to the perception and and contextualized within the art of that period and as such were revered as equally than as they are today. Strong, strong point. Strong point right there, right? The fad, the trend, the fashion of the day. It is not our intention to place this new style of kozumiku kozumiku, in opposition or within a hierarchy against the existing traditional styles. We wish merely to provide a rationale and context as to why and how it legitimately provides new, unexplored paths and a form of beauty beyond the established scene as a whole. Fascinating. This, this, This assessment and analysis of the narrative arc of the aesthetics in Japan pre-post-World War II fascinates me. And I really enjoy reading and listening to other people considering these constraints that are applied to the formality of this 
very cultural word. And because of the cultural nature of the word being a Japanese word, right? Bonsai is an interpretation in the Japanese form of the Chinese model of penjing. And penjing is an interpretation in the Chinese form of the miniaturized tree representing nature, right? And so it's very fascinating to see this cosmic style or the Burton style of bonsai and this kozumiku in Lorin's world defining a different context that he's exploring through the miniaturized form of the tree. And I think looking at his display in the show, it it was so undeniable the profundity of the technique that whether you liked the aesthetic or not, or agreed with it or not, you had to be respectful of it. And that's the way that an artist is able to clearly communicate is having a mastery of the craft, having a robust prolific body of work in making a statement through their work that causes people to stop and think, I don't know, I don't know that anybody has made such a radical statement or adjusted the aesthetic style in how many decades post-World War II prior to Lauren Darieu. I mean, Dan Robinson, yes, Walter Paul, yes, they are still closer to the traditional model than Lorin is. And yet you cannot deny that he has got a mastery of craft in the work that he produces. Now, page 62, the display of the Chinese elm. And you see the robot sweeping leaves of the elm. Now, again, I, 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 I can't quite recall the total context of his display and the bear uh, chemical company statement, but it was very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. Oh, here it is. It's on page 63 and 64. The tree as it was, exi- as it was exhibited at the 20th trophy in Gank in February, 2019, this time with criticism from bear Monsanto and the world in which they offer us to live. And there's a kakejiku or a scroll that says bear, and it has uncle Sam pointing at you. And it says, we don't need you. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Digest that. I saw Lauren's work uh, one other time in person. It was at Saliu in 2016. Um, And he was displaying a, uh, he was displaying a Tanuki graft, which is where you lay in like a, a long slender trunk into deadwood. You carve a channel for it. You, you lay it into a deadwood piece from another tree, a dead tree, a deceased tree. And typically it's frowned upon, you know, all bonsai practitioners sort of see this deadwood that they want to bring back to life. Some people do it. Usually it's poorly done. And purists snicker at it saying that's totally artificial. Now I will tell you, Tanuki bonsai are created in Japan. I'll tell you, some kokfu trees are actually tanukis. Nobody would want you to know that, and it's tough to identify which ones are, but I can firmly tell you, not saying Mr. Kimura ever did this, that's not what I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not outing anybody, but I am saying that there are trees that have been in the kokfu. I've even been told there's a tree that's won the kokfu that was a tanuki. I do not know if that's true, and I cannot support that, but I can tell you that there are trees in the kokfu that were tanukis. They were just done at a higher level of craft. Now, some of you are going to be cursing me and saying, how dare you say that? 
right? That's, hey, listen, look, you can glue a piece of bark onto a pine. And if it's done correctly and you can't tell that it's unnatural, is it wrong? You know, we change the position of a branch with wire. Is there something different about the artificial form and shape that we give these trees that makes a tanuki even more uh, denigrating of the quote unquote naturalness? I I don't know. I mean, if somebody did it well enough, they did a Japanese maple well enough to get into the kokfu. They did a tanuki graft of a juniper well enough to get into the kokfu. Are, are we are we that upset by that? I think it's interesting, and I think Lorin challenged that. He challenged that uh, preconception, and he writes after showing multiple tanukis, including this massive juniper that I saw in Saliu. He said, "For those who did not have the means to buy yamadori in the '90s." And who did not know enough about the methods of collecting, collecting deadwood for, from junipers in the mountains seemed to be an appropriate solution to reduce expenses and spare some trees from death. This was true in our case, and we laid our hands on many splendid pieces of wood. And even if some juniper collections ended tragically, nothing prevents us from reviving a tree that we have caused to die. I believe this tree sold, I want to say, after Saliu for a fairly handsome sum of money, but it certainly represented this... Uh, you know, sort of redheaded stepchild of the bonsai world in a way that they had not been represented before. And it was very, very transparent, which I thought was very courageous. Uh, Cosmic bonsai breathes a completely different concept of what this art form can be, what it can discuss. And I think more than anything, it shares the insight of a very brilliant, slightly madman, potentially, right? Who dared to challenge the context and I think potentially had the most revolutionary take on bonsai that I've seen in my lifetime. Book number five, I, you know, this is in no order of ascending or descending priority, but book number five is the Artisan's Cup exhibition book. And I look at this, you know, and maybe this has more personal uh, implication than any of the other books. Obviously, the Artisan's Cup was an exhibition held at the Portland Art Museum the last weekend of September in 2015. And bonsai in the United States was a Japanese art form. Bonsai in the United States was a was a traditional uh, rule based m- sort of manifestation of the practice as it had sort of come to evolve post-World War II. And there was a real need in the early part of my career, at least I felt, you know, that we needed to recognize bonsai as an art form or we were not going to be able to evolve beyond where we were at that time. And the Artisan's Cup, at every single level, putting it in an art museum speaking about it as art, writing about it as art, photographing it as art, Every single piece of the puzzle was meant to try and make an undeniable gesture. The architecture working with Skylab, representing the American forest through the architectural forms and lighting. Chris Hornbecker's photography, Trevor Orton's uh, words, Vanessa Despain's design. Every single piece of this, Arthur Hitchcock's uh, capturing of the trees in the event. I mean, this was really the best effort I could have put forward. And I think it was very daring. The experience of the exhibition was incredibly moving. And it defied all odds, bringing it together and having it be as successful as it was. It almost broke me in every single sense of of the word. It almost broke me. But the first image that I'm looking at is the powerful image 
And I'm trying to see if I can find some reference to the page. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's page, very, very few page numbers, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. Page 29. Now, these were, um, these were diptychs that Chris Hornbecker took. And this is of the very famous Sierra Juniper grafted with Shimpaku at the Pacific Bonsai Museum laid over an arid landscape. And Chris aligned in this. This is completely, you know, Vanessa talked with Chris about the marketing assets for this exhibition and connecting people to the landscape through these miniaturized trees. And Chris just took it to an entirely different level. And you can see where the base of the tree lines up with the light and shadow and the cracks and contours of the of the earth. And you can see where the right branch lines up to a rolling hill where you see the contour of the branch almost extended and carried out of the photograph. And his crop on the photographs cropping out portions of the tree allowed the tree to connect to the landscape. I mean, I don't, I still to this day cannot come up with, and, and I've looked at these images so much from 2015 to now, this is eight years. I have never seen a more moving uh, representation of bonsai and its connection to the landscape than Chris Hornbecker's interpretation. And this was his this was his brainchild. I mean, this is somebody who does not practice bonsai, but somebody who is on an elevated level in their own artistic practice to contextually present the subject matter via photograph in a way that has not been thought of or considered before. And he's done this time and again, time and again. Chris Hornbecker, very established uh, professional photographer across North America. Uh, his images adorn Timbers uh, Soccer Stadium in Portland. He's represented all of the major brands. He's shot every famous person in the in the in the book that you could shoot. I still find this to be his most impressive body of work. I mean, it it, it blows my mind every time I see it. And when you turn the page, you see the setup to the Artisan's Cup in a fully illuminated ballroom at the Portland Art Museum. Now, let me just let me just walk you through this. Okay, the 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 venue itself was so expensive that we had to minimize the amount of time we were in the venue. So we got into the venue at 5 a.m. the day before the Artisan's Cup was set to open. We had 72 uh, spaces to construct through these fabricated pieces that Oscar Eisenschmidt welded and Oscar and I designed with the help of Jeff Covell and his team at Skylab Architecture, right? Not a single structure had ever actually been built, right? This was all hypothetical. And we had picked up the structures the day before and packed them into moving trucks from the powder coater. They had been finished through like a 72-hour surge at the last minute by Oscar and his team. I mean, like, talk about last minute. Like, when we brought these on site, first things first, we had to lay out the electrical because every single structure was illuminated. We had to roll carpet over it so that it was fire safe uh, and not a trip hazard. We had to set up all of the structures. And while this is happening, all of the trees for the exhibition are being delivered. There's a photography uh, component to it where they're all being shot in a separate room. Um, There's a check-in of all of the accoutrements, which people are just leaving with their trees. Meanwhile, I'm still running around trying to deliver the trees that Mariah had to bring to the show and I had to go pick up one of the photo stands which hadn't made it through fabrication so we could complete the photo shoot that day before we actually could load all the trees into the exhibition. Meanwhile, there's a group of volunteers that's down in the ballroom trying to figure out how to piece these freaking structures together and get them to work because not a single person had ever built one of these things. 
I mean, it was when you want to talk about one of the ways that you have a nervous breakdown, or if you want to talk about one of the ways that you really roll the dice on being successful, the Artisans Cup was like, I I look back and I say, boy, that was a bold move. That was that was ballsy, right? We ended up putting the first tree into the exhibition at 2 a.m. that night. Right. We had other events. We had to get all the trees photographed. We had to get the structures constructed. I mean, thank goodness for the, the list of volunteers that helped put that together and dedicated themselves to it. There were some bleak moments on that day. Right. It was Thursday. We were opening Friday night. Like we put the first tree into the actual physical exhibition at 2 a.m. End of Thursday, morning of Friday, 2 a.m. Chris Hornbecker is like dying a slow death of cold flu. I don't know what he had, but it was bad. He came in to illuminate the exhibition at 5 a.m. I was under the table of each individual tree, adjusting the dials of the light and illumination. He was standing back, telling me to raise it, decrease it, testing the boundaries one after another. I kept falling asleep under the structures, trying to adjust the lights and the level of illumination. I mean, we finished illuminating the exhibition at 9 a.m. as the architects walked in to do the final review, and I could not see straight. I could not see straight. We had a garden visit at Mirai. I had to go back to Mirai. I hadn't slept in like two and a half days. I, I, it, it was absolute insanity. And then we opened the show Friday night and filled it from the beginning And it was that way until that show closed on Sunday. An absolutely spectacular experience. Now, if you keep turning the pages, you see 12,000 feet of steel, one mile of welding, 150 sheets of of birch plywood, 60 gallons of coffee, over 1,000 man hours of labor, and an art form forever changed. And then you continue to turn the pages. Bonsai is life. It is struggle and beauty. It is patience and toil. It is an art unlike any other because it is us, and yet it is forever beyond us. Welcome to the Artisan's Cup. That's Trevor Orton. It is an art unlike any other because it is us, and yet it is ever forever. It is forever beyond us. You know, to say, and I think this is why people have such a hard time with their tree being critiqued or why we, we, we put so much into our trees being exhibited and people looking at them and liking them, is that You cannot make a bonsai and not feel like it is a reflection of you. And even if you don't feel like it's a reflection of you, other people can see it. It's an intangible, undeniable, seamless collaboration between a human being and a tree. And there is such a shared amount of energy and DNA in there. And I just think Trevor captured it beautifully. You turn the page one more time. This section of the book is is my favorite. And you see that otherwise illuminated ballroom completely black and you see the trees lifted off of the black backdrops and you see the light through the slats and you see the color and the experience uh, of the artisan's cup. It was, it was, a, it was a game-changing moment. It was a game-changing moment for the world of bonsai. Internationally, it was a game-changing moment. Was it the same impact that the ginkgo had? Was it the same impact that the... Co- no, no, it was just different, Right. It was introducing a different idea, and the ripple effect of it was massive, massive for Bonsai in North America, right? What a walk. What a walk down memory lane. What a magical thing that we get to enjoy in these little preservative, nostalgic moments of beauty. Five books, 
that I would encourage you all to, if you have the ability, engage with and spend some time with, read, enjoy, digest, um, because they can reframe your context of what's possible, what this means, what our motivation is. They can offer these individual perspectives and, and really capture this art form in a beautiful and thought-provoking light. Check out the, the podcast description below for links to these books. And um, yeah, hopefully you were able to enjoy that. I, I thoroughly enjoyed sharing and, uh, and hope you enjoy engaging with these things too. All right. Talk to you later.